If you want to own a small business, you've got to be committed. You've got to know that's what you want to do. And you've got to know there's lots of sacrifices. There's, there's lots of highs, there's lots of lows, but you're taking some ownership of your life. But as long as you know you can do it, I think you can get through it. Hello, I'm Andrew May, and this is the NAB Business Fit Podcast, where we chat with experts and leaders in a range of fields, delving into their world to find out what fuels them and to learn lessons that can be applied to running a small business. We have conversations about how they've adapted to new ways of working and share stories about navigating through challenging times. Small business is in my veins, from running a lawn mowing business when I was in high school, to traveling the world working with sporting teams, to now running boutique, digital and media consultants consultancy strive stronger. I love seeing people get the best out of themselves and that is exactly why we've started this podcast. My guest today describes himself as father, uncle, brother, headmaster, policeman, therapist and even soap opera director. He's father to Jessica. Ali Rosa, Sophie and Grace. He's also the 1987 winner of the English Prize at the Aquinas College in Perth. Throw in 105 test matches, 23 centuries, 7,696 runs. He's also the current head coach of the Australian cricket team, Justin Langer. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Maisie. A very nice introduction. It's great speaking with you. Now, you're in quarantine at the moment. I haven't seen you for a number of years. We'll delve into when we first met each other a number of years ago. And I've got a story which I'll bring up as well, how you were a little bit different to the rest. While the rest were maybe having a couple of beers, you used to run. We'll we'll bring that one up as well. But to start with, what what are you doing in quarantine and how are you finding it? Well, if you had have asked me pre-going to England uh, four weeks, three weeks ago, um, I would have said I loved every, and I say this with great respect and compassion, but I, the only thing I didn't like about the COVID was the COVID <laughs> because last year, for example, I spent 300 days away from home and that has its challenges. There's no doubt about that. So for that period before going back to work, I guess, um, I was at home. I was working from my desk a lot. I was in my garden. I was seeing my family and friends every single day. Um, I was eating home-cooked meals I was doing everything the opposite that I've done for most of my adult life. So it was a magical four months. And then I went back to England um, with the Australian team. We played a one day in a T20 series. And then coming home, it's been different. It was strict quarantine in Adelaide for two weeks. And then I've got two more weeks in quarantine in Perth. So, I mean, as you know, Maisie, just before we started this podcast, I had two policemen knock on my door to make sure I was here and I feel like my hands are, I'm handcuffed a little bit, but I'm still enjoying being home and you know, loving every minute of being home with my family. It's one of the, the messages we're seeing with a number of people, Justin, on this podcast, especially a number of business leaders and small business owners are saying, look, there are the challenges and once they've got their head around working from home, especially in remote work, that they are seeing their family a lot more. They're connecting with nature. They're going back to hobbies. I know you love uh, gardening and your roses. You told me are looking beautiful at the moment, but how do you play cricket working from home? Well, one thing I've learned is incredibly is with technology now, I've I become to recognise how much wasted time we've got. And living in Perth, often I've got to fly to the eastern states and whether it's Queensland where the Cricket Academy or the Centre of Excellence is, go to Melbourne where Cricket Australia is for a, a couple of hours meeting. And when you fly from Perth to the Eastern States, then that's not only a flight, there's also there's the, um, the time zone difference. So it's really tiring. And then I think to myself, wow, 
I'm not sure I will ever have a meeting face-to-face in the Eastern States ever again because I don't need to. I mean, we're sitting here looking at so each other many. now, Maisie, and it actually saves me days and it saves – I mean, you spend as much time as we do on the road internationally and, um, and nationally – I just think you can get so much work done through these Zoom calls or Microsoft Teams or these different technology platforms, and that gives us precious time. I've said for the last two and a half years in this job, every single day I'm at home is like a week's holiday. So and I talked to Cricket Australia, so every opportunity I have to be home, let me be home because it helps recharge, it helps me um, re-establish my relationships with my, my family and my friends. So that's one of the great lessons out of the last five or six months. I think we've been fast forwarded five, in some cases, 10 years with technology. And uh, like it's similar. Like I often go to Melbourne or New Zealand. A couple of years ago, I flew to Amsterdam for a one-hour presentation. So it's basically a day and a half to get there, do the presentation, adjust a day, flying back. It wrecked the whole week. Look, it was fun going to Amsterdam. But you, you do question are we ever going to go back to how we used to work? And so with cricket, obviously, for you, one of the questions I've got, and having worked in that that field myself a number of years ago, how have you kept up the intensity? Because, again, a lot of people listening to this are in business, running small business, and it's full on. As a small business owner, you're the CFO, the CEO, you come up with the product, you're the salesperson, you're the admin operator, and you go to office works to get the, the paper supplies, and it is unrelenting. But how do you balance that? So on the road for 300 days a year, that's a lot of time. Yeah, it is. And But I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and it's one of the things that I often talk about in leadership. One, you've got to know that you want to do it. So in my case, taking over the coach of the Australian cricket team, it's like I'm running my own business. That's how I always, I feel like I'm the, you know, I'm looking to run the business as well as I can. And when it all happened in Cape Town with the sandpaper, and it was a real crisis time. Um, and I was literally living my dream job. I was coaching the West Australian cricket team. I was coaching the Perth Scorchers over here. I was spending a lot more time in Western Australia. I was seeing my mates. I was, I'm on the board of the West Coast Eagles footy club, which I love. It was literally my dream job and I was a head coach. So, and then this, the job came And you were this, winning too, right? You, you, yeah, you it was incredible. In. Were, I mean, we were, having, we were having a golden run. And I was loving every minute of it. And I was loving my life, frankly. Uh, Not that I don't now, but it's certainly been a lot more challenging the last few years. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Uh, And But I I, I remember the day after Sandpaper, Maisie, I, I went down to the Fremantle markets and I've been doing that for the last five years with my second daughter, Ali Rose. And we go down there. And we listen to our music on the way down there. Fremantle's 20 minutes south of where I live and there's this great market and we listen to our music, drink our coffee, eat our goslamay, talk. It was like our date for the week and we've been doing it for five years. Anyway, the, and we've been doing this and no one ever bugs us. I've got my cap on, I've got my sozo and we just talk rubbish and everyone's polite. The day after Sandpaper, I would have had 30 people, the hippies, the families, the business, small business owners coming up from the markets are going, what has happened to the Australian cricket team? What is going on? And I thought, whoa, people are getting angry, people are getting sad. And then the next day, Maisie, I went to the new facility for the West Coast Eagles Footy Club, the big construction site, put my hard hat on, put my high-vis shirt on, and 
I'm looking around this, and there would have been 300 Aussie blokes strong, pushing their wheelbarrows, and they're coming, what has happened to our Australian cricket team? And they were angry. They couldn't believe that we'd cheated. And it was at that moment I thought, wow, what a project. Australian cricket, Australian sport means a lot to people. What a what a project to take on. And that's when I realised I really wanted to do this. I almost felt a responsibility to do it. Um, and because I was so strongly committed to doing it, Mm. That makes it a lot easier. And my point is, if you want to own a small business, you've got to be committed. Yeah, You've got to know that's what you want to do. And you've got to know there's lots of sacrifices. There's, there's lots of highs. There's lots of lows. Um, but you're taking some ownership of your life. And uh, But you, if you, as long as you know you can do it, I think you can get through it. If you're mm, cozy, cozy, I'm not sure whether I really want to do it, that's when it becomes really hard, right? So you've got to do be Do you know the Alan Jones committed. story uh, Alan Jones, when he was coach for the Wallabies, if you heard this one, he was talking about the difference. It was before a Bledisloe Cup game and he was uh, explaining the difference between interested and committed. And I'll, I'll dial the language back because it was for um, especially some rugby players back then who liked the colourful language. And he said, no, gentlemen, look at your plate and I'm going to tell you a story about the difference between being interested and committed. They had bacon and eggs for brekkie. Yeah. <laughs> you look at the, the chicken, the chicken's interested. But that pig, that pig is effing well committed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Go out there and get committed. <laughs> so um, interesting. I remember the date on Sandpaper Gate. It was 24th of March, 2018. The reason I remember is I was away with my mates from Dubbo. So I went to school with a bunch of guys named Mario, Ego, Dino and Lapa. You can't write this stuff. And we have a husband offsite once a year. And we're at Byron Bay. And I remember we'd been out to the Byron Bay pub and we're into the festival, probably not dissimilar to the Fremantle markets. You know, you got that vibe. Uh, if you had some hair, I would have had some dreadlocks in it. It would have been playing the Jack Johnson tunes. You get the, the yeah, feel. And we went home and it was suddenly, bang, being uh, busted with uh, Bancroft out on the field scratching something. And it was like that there. And even my mates who knew that I worked with cricket a number of years ago, oh, this is outrageous. Everyone had an opinion. So you saw that on that day in the markets. You obviously knew it was a big job. Do you miss the old days when you could just have time at your beloved West Coast Eagles on the board, still winning cricket games, not travelling as much? Oh, there's been lots of times in the last two years, yeah, of course. But I, I learned a really interesting lesson after three or four months, Maisie, and that was that I had to let it go. Because I, when I came into the role, I, like I said, I had no idea the intensity of the job. I'd live, I took over West Australian cricket when we had a crisis as well. So I'm really thankful I had done an apprenticeship in mm -hmm. getting through tough times and what you've got to do to change culture and how important leadership is. But I had no idea the intensity of the, well, pretty much every day of, of the job, but in those first four or five months, wow. But what I learned is I kept going back to, oh, mate, if only I was back at my old job. It wasn't as hard as this. But it got to a point where two things happened. After the first five months, we played India and we're getting beaten in everything. We got beaten 5-0 by England in my first trip away in, in one-day cricket. Um, then we went to United Arab Emirates. We got beaten, got smashed in white ball cricket. We got beaten in a test match. Um, we came back here. You're getting beaten in the press. The media the, the are media was brutal. My gosh. Field date to you guys. The media was brutal. And, you know, on one hand, I say fair enough. You know, we made a huge mistake. The Australian cricket made it. But, my gosh, everyone was brutal. And then we got beaten by India 
in Australia in a test series and one day, and it was the first time India had have ever beaten Australia in, in. So the first six months of the job was, my gosh, it was really hard. But two things happened. One, we were on day four in Sydney and my family who'd come to the Boxing Day test and then the Sydney test, they were flying home back to Perth and we're at breakfast and all the girls are there. And I've been going out with my wife since I was 14 years old, right? So she's seen it all. We're at breakfast and she's, I'm about to go to the SCG. She's about to go get to the airplane and she starts crying at the breakfast table. I said, what, what, are you, what are you crying about? She goes, I don't like what this is doing to you. I don't like what it's doing to you. I don't like what it's doing to us. I don't like what people are saying about you and the team. They don't even know who you are. And she got really emotional. That was like a real, really, really important moment in my coaching career of the Australian cricket team. I went, wow, okay, I'm going to have a really strong look at this. And one of the strategies was let go of, of the past, Justin. You're not the coach of West Australia. You're not living back in Perth. You've got to, while I was 100% committed to it, Maisie, I had to realise, let go of that and now move forward, move forward with the Australian cricket team. We've hit, we had hit rock bottom, mm. but then we're also hitting even more rock bottom because the team's losing as well in the first six months of the job. So uh, it was an important lesson for me. Um, you've got to make some changes. You've got to keep some balance with your family. You've got to make some real um, disciplined effort on how you're going to handle the press and the, the media. Uh, and you've got to let go of the past and keep moving forward, and that's really important. And if you look back, we now call it stress inoculation. That stress is actually a little bit of stress is good. So if you get a stress dose and recover, a stress dose and recover, it's how you train your players, your male and female cricketers. You train them, you restore. You train them, you restore, and you have hopefully improved performance. But if you look back, you know, your playing days, in and out of the test team, drop when you were 31, uh, read that you thought, you know, it was all over, and then that's really when your career started. Working with the wonderful Christine Matthews, former colleague of mine at New South Wales Cricket, who's done wonders uh, in WA as well. So I think learning, working with Christine would have been a good experience as well. So then when you did step into that that position as head of the or head coach of the Australian Test Team, more pressure than probably the Prime Minister at that stage. Yeah. So if you look back, those little things had built up stress or stress inoculation. That's the message we're trying to give the small business owners as well, JL, that a little bit of stress is okay. But at the moment, there's so much stress coming and I think some people are just overwhelmed by it. They don't know what to do. So when you're sitting down at breakfast, your wife Sue is saying, I don't see you like this. I haven't seen you. You let go. It, it's sometimes really hard to do that. Oh, it is. I think in life, Maisie, you, you, when when things get tough, you have you have two choices. You either quit or you get better. I didn't get selected in different teams because I wasn't good enough. So what do I do? Do I quit or do I get better? Well, I try to take the second approach. Um, and that's been through my whole life. So then when it gets to a point, and it's almost like life is teaching you the lesson that as you get to and then the 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 projects or the challenges get bigger and bigger. And, and when it comes to this point in my life, being the coach of the Australian cricket team is, you'd have to say, the pinnacle of my coaching career because where do you go from here? So, But I wouldn't have been at this point without the incredible mentors and the incredible life lessons and the incredible um, the apprenticeships I've led to get to this point. And, but then you've still got to this point with all this wisdom and experience and knowledge 
but you're still going to get challenged. You're going to get, I get challenged all the time. So what do you do? Do you quit or do you get you're better? You've got to keep learning, don't and you? And I've learned that. And I've learned that lesson. And, and actually, when you choose to get better rather than quit, well, it just adds layers and layers and layers to your character. And in the toughest times, and I know small business is going through hard times at the moment. I've got family who are in small business. I've, I've lived a life with a dad who's been in, in small business all his life. So I get it. But And there's going to be challenges. So what are you going to do? And it's okay to quit if you want to do something else. That's okay if it's your choice, but you quit or you get better. And, and in these really tough times, Maisie, whatever it is, whatever business we're in, you can sit with Sue. If Sue's sitting at the breakfast table crying, okay, Justin, what are you going to do? Are you going to keep going this way and have a heart attack and die and hate your job or are you going to look at doing things a little bit different? And I use that opportunity, that really, really low point to think, okay, there's going to be ways I've got to get better. I'm going to make a choice to work out how I can be more disciplined with the media. I'm going to make a choice about how I can let go of some of these outcomes. I'm going to make a choice that I'm going to spend more time where I can with my family. I'm going to make a choice that I'm going to smile more. I'm going to make a choice that I'm going to keep building relationships with my players. I'm going to make a choice on all these things because if I don't, well, I'm not only going to fail in the job, but I'm going to be so physically and mentally unhealthy. What's the point? What is the point of doing the pinnacle job, the best job I can do in the world from in my business? What's the point if I'm physically and mentally a wreck? And, what and is not the enjoying point? the process. What's the point if my family isn't happy? What's the point if I'm, there's no point. So I had to make some choices. I've got to get better here. I've got to find out ways to do it better. And I did. Look, I think there's so many messages, so many parallels with people who are in business at the moment. Uh, we, we went through similar, I said before we started recording, and we lost a lot of our revenue at Strive Stronger. And I, and I love that phrase, you either quit or get on with it. You know, we had a choice. You know, we've, we can embrace digital. We can get some new resources. We can get some more support. It's hard. And I don't want to just sort of wash over and go, oh, it's just easy. Just make a choice. But mindset is so important. It is so important. I really want to dig into some of the lessons you've had uh, around leadership, some of the mentoring, even some of the lessons growing up. But I, I don't I want to lose the opportunity to ask you, and, and if you want to sort of bounce duck underneath this one, by all means do, but why did that happen in South Africa? What, 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 what led to that? It wasn't just one event. It's, it's a culmination of a number of events, but you've obviously had a lot of time to sit back and reflect. And I see people of your era that when I worked as a fitness trainer, I did job sharing with Jock Campbell, big shout out to Jocko. Uh, and I worked with you in the Ashes 05 and in Australia in a number of test matches. And I saw you, Hados, all the players of that era, Stewie Clark, um, Brad Haddon, Gilly, Punter, you were just outraged. It was just you, you, you were just so, so upset that it had happened. So you've had a lot of time to reflect. Yeah, I remember one thing, it's not in my nature to duck under curly questions, that's for sure. Um, so I remember two things. One, Shane Warne one of our, our great mates and our teammates and the legend of the game, he was commentating the next day or that day in South Africa. And he, I remember him saying, one thing Australians don't do is they don't cheat. We play hard, we never cheat. We don't, it's not in our nature. We do not cheat. It's not the Aussie way to cheat. We play hard, you don't cheat. I remember him saying that and I, and I went, 
my gosh, how true. And that's why, and let's put it into context here, the ICC suspended Cameron Bancroft, took 75% of his match payment for what he did. I think Dave Warner and Steve Smith as the captain and vice-captain might have got a one-game suspension, two-game suspension. It was something like that. What did Cricket Australia do? They banned them for 12 months because we don't cheat. And we did. We cheated. And how do I reflect on it? One, there's not one listener here. And I said this the very first press conference I did. They said, I was asked the question over and over, will you welcome Steve Smith and Dave Warner back into the team? And I said, yes, I will, because there's not one listener, there's not one viewer who hasn't made a mistake in their life, not one who hasn't made a mistake. So, um, yeah, they're going to do their penance. They've been penalised heavily. And there's lots of people who said, oh, they should never play again. Oh, that's okay, no worries. Well, they did 12-month suspension and they made a mistake and the way they've come back through it is a great credit to them. Now, how do I reflect on why that happened? Well, obviously wasn't there, but I look at the pressure these guys, and, and I can almost I can also hear people say, yeah, but they got paid so much money. I don't care how much money you get paid. Pressure and stress, as you know, Maisie, isn't about how much money you get paid. There's more responsibility with the more money you get paid, or the more, that's just life, right? But I look at these guys and and let me let me put it into context again for you. Last when I was in England three weeks ago, right? And we went through the schedule for guys like Steve and Dave Warner and Pat Cummins and Josh Hayes and all our players. We went through the schedule with them individually for the next at least two years. And you could see the blood draining out of their face. So the guys who are playing, uh, They've just had two weeks quarantine in England, at before England in Sydney and Melbourne for these guys. They went to England. They were in England for five weeks. They went to now they're now in the United Arab Emirates and they're playing the IPL. They come back from the IPL. They have two weeks quarantine. The day after quarantine, they play a one-day international. They then play the one-day internationals, the T20s, and then the test matches. And then they go straight into the Big Bash and then we go to South Africa and then from South Africa they go straight to the next lot of IPL. From the IPL they go to um, hopefully the Test Championship in England, then we go to the West Indies and then we have the lead-up to the T20 World Cup in India and that's before, guess what, Maisie, the Ashes in Australia. The point is that... They are on the road, and with all the new quarantine, they don't see their families, right? They don't see their family. They're in hotels now for pretty much every day of the year. Now, you ask me what happened with uh, South Africa. These young guys, they got tired. They got stressed. They're away, and the schedule, this is what's coming forward. It's been no different for the last five or six years. We've got the you talk the, the pressure of leadership and they've got they're playing so much cricket and then you know it's like when you're a little baby, you got a five-month-old, right? Maisie? Uh, do I know it? Yes. Gorgeous so little You get Sophia. tired and you love it so much, but you wanted to go to sleep sometimes and you put it to bed as quick as you can because you need to get some sleep yourself. And just when you think they are, yeah, oh, they're not asleep, but you're oh, on the road and that's again. Right, another that's tournament, right. Yeah. Well, guess what? My oldest is 24. I've got four, and the stress doesn't stop, trust me. But 
Maisie, the point is I reckon they got tired and they made a mistake. And when you want tired, you want things to happen quick. And then they started trying to mess with the ball to make things happen quick. Now, will I ever condone it? Never. I hated it. I hated what the boys did. If you lined up a 1,000 sportsmen, I'd say Cameron Bancroft would be the last person to ever do that. And he did. And well, you've known him since uh, a, a teenager coming through the system in WA, so you know him well. Well, he was. He was like, well, he's like my son, one of my sons, like I feel with all my players. And then I saw it. I couldn't believe what had happened, Maisie. So do I conduct? Never, never. I hated every minute of it. Um, but if I try and find some sense in it, these young guys under enormous pressure, mentally, physically, um, the stresses, they made a big mistake. They made a huge mistake. But they also pied paid the penalty for it and you could say rightly so and but they the way they've come back is a great credit to I've them. seen what Steve Smith did in the recent ashes over in the UK unbelievable I've never seen a player of this era just in sync in flow uh, reminds me of Johnny Wilkinson which I'm going to ask you about in a moment because we both listened to a podcast with him recently that blew us away but do, do you think the current players are having fun or are they are, are they missing out on fun? Because if you look at your generation, it was professional, but it was a, sort of a turning time. You go back to then Borders generation, some of those guys you hear commentating go, ah, oh, there's too much money in the game and maybe there's a point of truth in that, right? You know, you, you said the pressure and everything you've got now, the next two, three years of your diary, uh, COVID's the only thing that's given you a break, some forced isolation. Do you think that you know, there, there was something that we're now missing back in the older days at the risk of saying that term, that it was more about playing? Mm. Well, I think balance. I, I actually think, um, and I'm talking about life balance, Maze. You're not even talking about work balance. I'm talking about is, and what I mean by that, well, there's a couple of things in the, for the current player. I'd hate to be a current player now in all sport because from the moment they get out of bed to the time they go to bed, they're measured. Everything is measured, like literally. Heart rate. You've got to do a wellness steps, test when you wake like, up. You've got to do a wellness. You've got to, and everything. You know, um, the these guys. Every every time they run, every time they, everything is measured. And I actually said, when we this COVID period hit, I couldn't wait to see how they'd come back because they weren't being measured. They weren't being with. They had, and I wanted to see who came back the fittest, who came back the strongest. It was magic. And I kept saying, it was like um, William Wallace in Braveheart. I kept saying, boys, you've got freedom. Go and get fit. We're not going to put everything on a silver platter. And I love that. But that took me back to yeah. when we started playing. If you wanted to get fitter, you went and got fitter. If you wanted to get technique better, you went and got your technique better. If you wanted to um, get mentally strong, you went and employed your own sports psychologist. And if I wanted to hit more balls, I had to go and find a batting coach because I used to train for Western Australia one afternoon a week. Wednesday afternoon, I used to train for Western Australia. And if you were good enough, you only got paid if you were in the first 11. So you had to be pretty desperate and pretty single-minded because if you wouldn't get paid one cent unless you're in the first 11. So I love that period. That's why I'd hate to be a player. I still to this day love training by myself. I love training by myself. It's like because I, that's how I always used to do it. But the other part of this, Maisie, is that from the time I started playing Sheffield Shield cricket when I was 19 or 20 years old, I always worked. I was working for Bank West. I was working for Hartley Point and Stockbrokers. I went back in 
when I was 25 and did a um, coaching scholarship with Rod Marsh at the Cricket Academy. I was always, well, it wasn't just cricket. And that was so important for me because it gave me a more rounded life. I'm, I learned what it was like to live in the real world, that we live in a, in a fairy tale world. It is. And, but living in a real, but learned, taught me how to, um, well, it taught me new skills, which was important. But it also taught me what the real world was like, and that was very important. I just couldn't wait to get to training. I couldn't wait to go and go for a run. I couldn't wait to go and hit some cricket balls. I couldn't because I had to work for a living. I started, and I heard you say about your lawn mowing round. I used to work, I used to install air conditioners while I was at uni. In Perth, there's no fun <laughs> installing air conditioners, mate. Especially in the middle of summer. Six, I used to grind, grind paint off swimming old swimming pools. Mate, there's no fun in that. But what it, the good thing about it, I then go to cricket training. I used to, oh, I was so excited. And that energy and enthusiasm and that joy for the game. Now, it's, mm. these guys are full-time professionals. Um, there's benefit in that. They get looked after very well. Um, but, you know, there's a different balance. But I will also say this, Maisie, is they still have fun. Don't ever, anyone who says don't have fun, I mean, Winning is still the best fun of all time. We make sure that we put an emphasis on celebrating success. They still have fun. And for people who are listening to this on just the podcast, uh, what they've missed is your big smile. Uh, for those watching this on video, you will have seen the, the change, you know, the, the full uh, full frontal smile. You're right. Like, we've got to have fun. We've got to play. And as you know, JL, I, I still do a bit of work with some sporting teams and some coaches behind the scenes to help them manage pressure because a, a coach is often, you know, the song, one is the loneliest number. John Farnham did a cover. You know, you're there, the players are celebrating. Oh, they've played really, really well. Uh, you lose, it's the coach's fault. Remember Buck used to say that? I think, well, Warney said the coach has got four wheels and takes us to the ground. That <laughs> created a bit of controversy. Yeah, sure. But um, I remember John Buchanan said that when the players are winning, they're doing a great job. When they're losing, it's the coach's fault. I heard a, I heard a great analogy, Maisie, about that. In, an old, a friend of mine once said, being the head coach has been a bit like being the dad of teenage boys. When things are going really well, they don't want to know you. When things are going bad, you're the first person they need. And it's so true. And, and it's it's it, one leadership can be such a lonely position. My gosh. The second thing is that even when you win, and we were in the Ashes last year, we win a test match and everyone's having the time of their life and my mind is ticking. Well, what are we going to do tomorrow? We're going to train tomorrow. We're going to select another team. How are we going to tell him that he's not playing? What are we going to do? And you, your mind never stops. And and I guess it's one of the parts of the job, unfortunately. But head coaching, like being a CEO or running a small business, is the head of it is mm. bloody hard and it's lonely and it's, my gosh, it's full on. Your mind never well, stops. Well, I often do it? this with my high performers, business, sport, entertainers. I get them to go back to when they were a child. If they're not having fun now, uh, when did you play? Oh, I don't. You know, kids, play, play dough. They have play time, even food, it's play lunch. You know, they just make a game of everything. So I often get them to go back to a young age and reconnect with the, the passion or the craft and what is it that drove them towards that career. So let's do that with you. Let's go back to a young Justin growing up in Perth. Uh, big influence from your grandparents. I've heard you talk about them before. What did they teach you? Oh, my grandparents, well, my mum and my dad and my grandparents. I, I'm so lucky, Maisie. I've had incredible, uh, an incredibly strong foundation in my life, which started with my family. So 
my nana, my nana Biddy, she was a legend. I used to not actually had eight children and I lived in a two and a half bedroom house, but she was a great cook. And one thing I learned from my nana was, you know, she used to always, I used to go there from uni and I'd go and have lunch with her and she'd make the cheese and pickle sandwiches. Amazing. And the butter was about a centimetre thick. The, the cheese was about a centimetre thick and the bread was always white bread. And I'd be going, Nan, I'm trying to be a professional sport. I'm trying to keep my skin folds down. She'd give me a cup of tea and some cake. She goes, don't worry, love, it's good for the soul. So I'm eating it. And I always remember, and the great lesson I learned from my nana was that I'd say, Nan, I'm really worried about something. She goes, oh, is there anything you can do about it, darling? I'm going, no, there's nothing I can do about it. She goes, don't worry about it then, darling. I said, oh, okay. Then she'd go, no, I'm really worried about this, Nan. And she goes, is there anything you do about it, darling? I go, yeah, there's something I can do about it. Well, don't worry about it, darling. Don't worry so much. If there's something you can do about it, don't worry about it. If there's nothing you can do about it, don't worry about it. Mm. What a lesson. What a great lesson. I learned from my um, my pop, Harold, legend, tough, tough Maisie. Like, used to run pubs and little boxer. Anyway, when I was a little kid, I was scared of heights. And my pop one day, and I was petrified of heights. We're all, everyone on this podcast is scared of something. It might be spiders or snakes or failure or success. We're all scared of something. I was scared of heights. Anyway, this one morning, I was in my, in my little house in Perth, and I could hear this knock on the front door, and then I could hear some steps coming down the little hallway and a little knock on my door, and there's my pop sitting or standing in front of me at my bed. And it's like five o'clock in the morning. I'm, I'm a 16-year-old kid. I've never been up at five o'clock in my life, Maisie. And there's my pop. I could, still, I could smell the Benson hedges on his breath, right? I'd come on, son, wake up. I thought, oh, pop, what's happened? He goes, I've been worried about your son. I'm going to cure you of your fear of heights this morning. <laughs> I said, what are you talking about? He goes, come on, I'll meet me out in the car. So out we go and put my tracky dacks on and my T-shirt and he goes and he drives for about 20 minutes. He's smoking his Winnie Reds and and those days he didn't even put the window down, you know, Maisie, he's just smoking his... Or non-smoking was in the back seat, right? It's like when you oh, used to fly Lufthansa. Right. You, you yeah. want to sit in the smoking <laughs> section of the non... I flew, the first time I flew to London was to go over there and run, like to go and, and get some racing in and I sat behind this guy smoking cigars. I'm in the non-smoking. He's in the seat in front of me. Outrageous. How times have changed, eh? My gosh. But my pop gets me this construction site and there's a big sign, um, construction in progress, danger, keep out. And it's like 5, 30, 20 in the morning. It's still pitch black. Anyway, my pop goes, come on, I cure your fear of heights. I said, can't you just teach me here? He goes, no, no, son, that's not how it works. He said, it's like honey. Anyone can tell you what honey tastes like. Until you've actually tasted it, you don't actually know, right? So off he goes. He starts walking up these steps, five five stories of steps, and there's dust and scaffold and bits of wire everywhere. And by five levels up, I'm starting, my heart starts pump, pumping. You get to ten levels up, I feel like I'm going to vomit, my head's spinning. All I can think about is falling over the edge and dying. Fifteen levels. We get to 20 levels up, Maisie, and I can smell this air and I'm now on all fours because I, all I think about is falling over. And eventually my pop grabs me by the by the scruff of the neck, pulls me up. I've got my eyes closed because when you're scared of heights, you keep your eyes closed because all you think about is seeing and falling over and dying, right? And it's spinning like you're blind drunk. And 
I can still smell the bed's head is just next to my ear. And my pop says, I'm holding on to the edge of the um, bricks as hard as I can. I've got my knuckles are white. I've got my eyes closed. And my pop whispers in my ear, open your eyes, son. I said, I'm not opening my eyes, pop. I'm going to die. Oh, this is, this is, and I hate my pop at this moment. He goes, no, no, trust me, open your eyes. And only because it was my pop did I open my eyes. I look up and Maisie, over the foothills of Perth, the sunrise, the sun's rising. And I'm, see, I've never seen a sunrise in my life. I'm 16 years old, right? I look up and the sun's starting to rise. And I'm sort of, at that very, I started relaxing. And I just can't take my eyes off this beautiful sunrise. It was like seeing the birth of my kids, right? It was beautiful. And my pop says, son, I've just cured you of fear of heights. I said, well, what do you mean? And he goes, but more importantly, I've just taught you one of the most important lessons you'll ever learn in your life. I'm going, Pop, what are you talking about? He says, Justin, in life, always look to where you want to go, not to where you don't want to go. Always look to where you want to go, not to where you don't want to go. And my gosh, what a lesson. We've talked about before how you, you make the choice. You quit or you get better. When you're really driven and you've got a vision for the baggy green cap or a successful business or a successful team, if you can keep looking at what you want to achieve, then you can get through everything. If you start looking at, oh, I'm going to fail, I'm going to be a failure, I'm going to fall over there, I'm going to die, I'm going to, guess what's going to happen? You're going to be so focused on that happening, that's what's going to happen. And then you haven't got the energy to keep fighting through the tough times, right? So stay focused, whether it's uh, whatever that outcome goal is, whatever the dream is, stay focused on that. That was the lesson from a pop, not on the the opposite of your dream. Could you and, feel your nan and pop looking over your shoulder when you were six months into the job, the weight of the world on your shoulders, you'd lost every game, uh, the media's against you, lots of team changes, your wife Sue in the coffee shop or at breakfast said you're not the same person. Yeah. And when you sort of go back and relay that story you told me. Did you feel their presence with you? Yeah, all the time. Now, this is the lessons. My, my life is about the people I've met and the experiences I've had. I learned an incredibly valuable lesson three years ago, and you talk about feeling the presence, is my mum died of ovarian cancer, and it was a really tough battle. Um, but she died. But anyway, a month before my mum died, my best mate died, had a heart attack, went for a run, had a heart attack, died suddenly. The lesson was in that period of my life, if you can get through that, you can get through anything. Mm. If I can get through that, I can get through anything. And often I'm having a bad day at work. I just look up at the, I, I look into the sky and go, I sort of, and I say, Mum, Billy, Ben, Nana, Pop, whoever, come on, come on. Just, it's almost like they're smiling at me, going, don't worry, it'll be okay, relax. It's not going to be okay. So, and that sounds a bit weird and out there, but it's so true. I mean, these people in my life that I would not be here without the incredible mentors and friends in my life, Maisie. I would not be here, mate. And they're always with me. Mm. A great lesson Rick Charlesworth, right? Rick Charlesworth, the great hockey the, coach. Uh, WA hockey and played good state cricket. cricket. Too. He was, I played Sheffield. Say, talk about him, the Bradman of hockey. He was the most successful coach almost in Australian history. Um, he was a doctor. He was a member of parliament. Like, talk about high achievers, Maisie. Anyway, in 1998, 
I got I had pl- the best innings I ever played in my life against Pakistan. Anyway, and at the end of I had this incredible partnership with Adam Gilchrist and we won the and uh, in, it was like and then one winnable test match, I'm walking around like I'm Viv Richards, feeling pretty good about myself. The Prime Minister's ringing me. Everyone's <laughs> ringing me. I'm in all the TV shows and, you know, it's great. Anyway, two days after that, I was at the Wacker and he was, and we had the next test was at the Wacker and Rick Charlesworth was the keynote speaker at the test match dinner. And I sort of walked over to him feeling like I'm Viv Richards and I said to Rick Charlesworth, oh, thanks, so That was a really great speech, mate. And he just looked at me with these steely eyes. He said, what do you think you were doing? I said, what do you mean? He goes, we got out with five runs to get. You didn't complete the job. Champions don't make mental errors like you made. I went, oh. He said, champions don't ever do it again. I went, whoa. Now, I could have walked away and go, yeah, whatever, you silly old fool, whatever you think. That's from Rick Charlesworth, right? Maisie, every single time I batted after that, I had Rick Charlesworth on my shoulder going, champions don't make those meals, get the job done, get the job, complete the job, complete the job. So, and this is what's happened. Often the toughest mentors I've had in my life who have told me the truth, cared about me enough to tell me the truth, are to this day my best friends and the people I admire the most and the people I talk about right now because I love being able to talk about these incredible mentors, whether it's my mum and my dad, whether it's my grandparents, whether it's great coaches I've had. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be here without those people right now. Hi, we hope you have been enjoying this podcast so far. Don't forget that we have plenty more podcasts and content just like this on NAB Business Fit. Go to www.nab.com.au forward slash business fit for more content to support your physical and psychological well-being and to help you take care of business. Leading organisational psychologist talks about, or they talk about the balance between cheerleaders and champions. So there's a guy named Adam Grant who talks about this, that you have a balance of cheerleaders. That can be the, the challenge with people who are going really well in sport or in business. Everyone's pumping your tyres up, telling you you're doing a great job, but you need the challenges as well. People that do challenge you and you get you to stretch further to, to aim for more. Have you mentioned a number of people who've influenced you? Who else has had an impact in relation to leadership? Oh, well, on you? But, but before I answer that question, Maisie, that's one of the really uh, profound things about social media now. If I could give any young player or any person actually any advice, they'd stay off social media because this is what happens, Maisie. I do not need people to tell me how well I'm going, the cheerleaders, right? I don't need that. I'm st- I know how well I'm going. More importantly, I don't need people telling me how bad I'm going because I know if I'm going well or if I'm not going well and I know I've got this group of people. It's like having my own board of directors who will tell me, who will keep me. If things are going well, don't get too up, Justin. If things are going bad, don't get too down. I've got those people. I don't need complete strangers telling me how well I'm going and how bad I'm going. Mm. It's really that's really important. Um, I think I think for any millennials, especially and the, and the younger generation, listening to this, who gets so swept up, and it's not even just younger generation. A lot of more mature people are really addicted. It's the dopamine hits we're getting from the constant yeah. connection to technology. 
It's hard, right? Uh, but when you're running a business, you don't have much time. And if you're going to look at your social media and all of your technology the whole time, your brain never gets a chance. You never go into, you, you don't relax the brain, that psychological detachment, and you don't calm the body, that parasympathetic activation. So yeah, great tips. 100%. Get off your 100%. mobile phones. And I've got four daughters, right? So, and but and they're all, it's all the same. They love their, but I, I'm on zero social media. And that include, and people go, what do you mean? Yeah, it's a great platform to get out and tell people that. I said, yeah, but I don't, I don't need that. I do not need that in my life. I've got a core group of friends. I've, I get to meet incredible people. I get to do incredible things. So I don't need strangers telling me how well or how badly I'm going. Mm. And and you've got to be strong with that because it's addictive. But I, I, it's always that's just a golden rule for me. Uh, great people. Oh, oh well, well, again, give me give me two stuff. or three. Steve Waugh, great captain. If Steve Waugh asked me to run through the brick wall in my office, I'd run as hard as I could right now. Not because I'm an idiot, Maisie, but Steve Waugh wouldn't ask me to run through it unless he'd go through it himself and unless he thought I could get through it. That's leadership. Mm. i never forget the great story. Before that innings I told you about, before Rick Charlesworth, I was under pressure for my spot in the team. I always seemed to be that player who was. And we're in Hobart. And at breakfast, Steve Waugh grabs me, he goes, hey, Lane, come here. And when Steve Waugh spoke, you listened. He didn't speak much. I said, oh, what is it, Captain? He goes, Lane, I don't want you to listen to any more of this press. I don't want you to read the newspapers. I don't want you to listen to this. So he was basically giving me the advice as a 28-year-old that I give to everyone now. But now it's social media. Back then there was no such thing as social media. And I said, okay, no worries. He goes, I want you in the team. You're the best number three in Australia. I want you in the team. Your mates want you in the team. We'd love you in the team. The coach wants you in the team. The selectors, go and show us what you got. So I'm feeling like Superman because the leader's telling me that I'm the man. That's not the end of the story. About four hours later at practice at Balrevo, I'm walking back. I've got my my bat, my pads under my arm, walking back, finished my training, and Steve Waugh's being um interviewed by, you know, this media conference. There's a, select, uh, a new reporter there with the bagos, and he says to Steve, well, so just, uh, Steve, got any advice for Justin Langer? He obviously can't keep picking and he's in horrible form. Have you got any advice for Justin Langer? Like, what do you tell someone like him? And I want the whole earth to open up and swallow me, right, Maisie? Steve Moore says, yeah, I've got some advice for Justin Langer. Stop reading your shit. <laughs> so not only is he backing me privately, he's also backing me publicly, Maisie. And that's what great leadership is. I've learned from Steve Waugh. Always praise publicly and criticise privately. So if you need to have an honest conversation, do it privately, one-on-one. That's courage. But that's Steve Waugh. And it happened to be my greatest ever innings, the next five days. Great lesson. I've got a Steve Waugh story that involves you because I was uh, fortunate I spent a bit of time with him when he stopped playing for Australia and he was playing for New South Wales. I was the fitness trainer at New South Wales Cricket and Mark Waugh, Steve Waugh and Slats all came back at the same stage and then Slats had got his Superman tat and got the Ferrari and he was was living some uh, pretty big days back then, Slatsy. 
And I remember just seeing the quietness of Steve War, but the steely resolve. And you were in this story. It was at the WACA in 2003. It was the ING Cup, I believe, back then. So it's the end, the penultimate game, New South Wales versus WA. You're opening the batting. And Steve War in the dressing room, Paddy Farhart said to me, hey, mate, mate, watch what Tiger does. And he walked around to every single player. And you talk about leader agility. And he spoke to each player in the way that they needed to be spoken to. So Brad Hatton, Connor Hads, you know, you're on the cusp. You know, show that you can keep as well as Gilly on his home ground. Like you plant the seed in Brad Hatton's head. What do you think he said to Stuart Clark? Not much. Hey, Saf, you know what to do. Sean Bradstreet, winger. Mate, you're the workhorse. You know, everyone's saying you can't do this. You've been injured. He gave winger the, 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 the William Wallace speech. Uh, went through to McGill. Um, yeah, McGill, just go and do what you need to do. Like it was just, he, he the nuances with each person, it was just wonderful to watch. And then he got to Dougie Bollinger. What do you think he said to Dougie in relation to bowling to you? And I know you and Stephen are good friends, but what do you think he said yeah. to Doug? He probably said, mate, you're his, but you get in out every single mate, time. JL is shitting himself. He's in there thinking of you. You got him. You got him. Yeah, yeah, Tugger. <laughs> and it was just wonderful seeing him, knowing that you and he are such good friends and played together yeah. for years. But, you know, in that moment of leadership, Steve with Dougie Bollinger, and look, we love Dougie Bollinger. I still remember when he took that wicket and kissed the VB leg. <laughs> uh, but it was just, it was a lesson in leadership just going through with each person, just telling them the nuances about what they needed to do. And he did it to every single player. It would have taken him about 10 minutes to go through. And, you know, it was wonderful. New South Wales, if you forget, won the game. That oh, day. And Simon Cadditch, one of your miracle. olds. Yeah, sparring miracle. mates. <laughs> Top scored and I think it was 75 or 76 and uh, Safraz got man of the match. So it was, a, it was a very good example in leadership. Well, and it's something, one of the great lessons I've learned in leadership, Maisie, and it helps being a father of four daughters, and I say this seriously, is that my daughters all come from the same place, Maisie, the same upbringing, same parents, and they're all so different. So the point is, if my daughters are all different, all my players are going to be different. You've got to treat all of them differently. Now, it's a mistake I think a lot of leaders make is they try and treat everyone the same. And you can't do that because if all my daughters are differently and I treat my daughters all differently, you still have the same boundaries, but they're all so different. And, um, and I agree. It's one of the art of leadership is to build relationships with people and they're all so different. So, and that's something that's been incredibly important to me in, or certainly as a coach. And it's a great lesson from Steve War. That's one of his one of his great strengths. He knew how to get the best out of it. I mean, Steve would often say to Matty Hayden and I, we're opening, the morning of now, boys, in the war, he goes, Lang, Dust, Hados, I'm going to win the toss and I'm going to bat first. Now, I know it's going to be tough, but we need you to be there at lunch because if you're there at lunch, we'll win there because we've got Warnie and I go, yeah, no worries, don't. So then all of a sudden, Hados and I are like the – Again, like William Wallace, we are like supermen. We're going to we're going to do it for our, our mate and our captain. We're going to fight for Steve War, and that was a great lesson. Um, you also asked about great leaders and great lessons. Let me tell you about John Howard, Maisie, and because this ties in with my other grandfather. My other grandfather, who was Biddy's husband, eight children, two and a half bedroom house, worked for the Australian Tax Office all his life. Never, ever swore. I'd never heard him swore a gentleman, just a really, really humble, great man. Anyway, after my nana died, 
everyone put, all the family put in some money and they sent Pop over to come and watch the Sydney Test match. Now, my Pop had never been on an aeroplane before, so he can't believe it. And he gets to the SCG and he's there with his mate Ron, who he's known from back in the war days, and they're kept in touch by writing letters to each other. So Ron lives in Sydney. So for five days, my pop sits there with Ron and they watch the cricket. My pop is that excited. He can't believe he's at the SCG watching his grandson play. Anyway, after the test, I say to my pop and his mate Ron, do you want to come into the change room and have a beer? I can't believe it. What, what, in the Australian dressing room? Yeah, come on, pop. My pop's in there. He's with their Warney and McGrath and, and the Boar brothers. And he can't, my pop is in awe. His eyes are popping. He's having his one crown lager. And never two, never three, never half, just one crown lager, mate. It was always the same. Anyway, into the change room walks the Prime Minister, John Howard. And my pop is like, cannot believe that he is seeing the Prime Minister because this doesn't happen in his life, Maisie. Anyway, John Howard walks over, shakes my hand, probably said, well, I'm getting another duck, Justin. Oh, thanks, Mr Howard. Miss Howard, I'd really like you to meet my grandfather, Alan Townsend. Oh, Alan, nice to meet you. Da, da, da. My pop cannot believe he is shaking hands with him. But that's not the story, mate. He goes home for the next year and he tells all his mates at the bowling club and at the shopping centre and at the uh, nursing home where he lives, I've met the Prime Minister and this is the greatest thing for the next year. Anyway, for the next five years, my pup comes to the Boxing Day test until my last test match. My last test match, we beat England 5-0. My pop's a bit bittersweet because it's the last time he's going to come and watch his grandson play test cricket. Pop's going to come into the change room. Oh, I'd love to. Comes in the change room with Ron. This year he's got his baggy green cap on. He's drinking the one crown lager. John Howard comes in the change room again. Walks over, walks around the room, walks to me while well on your career, Justin. Congratulations. Turns to my grandfather and says, Alan, it's very nice to see you again. This is five years later. Pop, uh, Maisie, he remembered my pop's name. Yeah, wow. Now, Maisie, I don't know who my pop used to vote for, but I'll tell you who he voted for after that. You know why? Because he made him feel special, and this is the most important thing about leadership. Mm. You've got to care for people and you've got to make them feel special. And if you make care for people and you make them feel special, guess what? They're going to follow you forever. And that is the crux and the key to great leadership. Make people feel special, care for them. And you imagine, that's John Howard. The word, when I first took on the job of the Australian cricket, what was the number one question everyone asked me? Besides, will Steve Boris and uh, will Steve Smith and Dave Warner come back? The number one question over and over again, how are you going to fix the culture of the Australian cricket team? And I said, well, culture is about behaviour. It's about one behaviour, it's 100 behaviours, 1,000 behaviours, about a million behaviours. If we do that right, well, then we've fixed the. Now, the reason I say that, amazing, is the word culture comes from, is derived from the Latin word cultus, and the word cultus means care. So in great cultures, in great leadership, it's about caring for people. It's about caring for your product. It's about caring for your customers. It's about caring for the people you work with. It's about caring for people. And whilst sometimes the image of the perception of me as a leader might be the tough guy, 
the ones who know me know I care so much for my players. I care so much for the game of cricket. I care so much for Australian cricket. I care so much for my family and friends. Leadership is about caring for people, and that's a really important lesson I learned from John Howard. Have you sat back and reflected? You've been in the job uh, over two years. It is a very different culture. You're winning games. The media is on your side. The public is back on side. It seems that people are being picked not just for taking runs or wickets or not hitting runs or wickets or fielding, but they're being picked to be the right person in the team as well, to care. Have you sat back and reflected yet with maybe one crown lager just to look at what have you, not single-handedly, but you've brought other people in, but have you sat back and reflected what have you created or what are you creating? Maisie, in January, the boys went to to India for three one-dayers and I took the opportunity to have a week off. And in that week off, or two weeks actually, I went down to Mandurah where my holiday house is. It's a little sleepy place an hour south of Perth and I was in one of the shopping centres and I reckon the first, I was meant to get my fruit and veggies or whatever and I reckon five or six people come up to me the opposite of the Fremantle markets two and a half years before, and they're going, oh, J- Justin, thank you so much. We are so proud of the Australian cricket team. Justin, oh, we love the Australian cricket team again. Justin, thank you so much. We love the boys. We love watching the Australian cricket team again. Now, the reason I say that, mate, that was my reflection time because at the start of this journey, I said our objective is to make Australia proud of us again to earn back respect and make Australians proud of us again. I said we're going to do that by developing great cricketers and great people. I said I'm going to do it by living these five values, professionalism, mateship, learning, um, and we're going to live these values. We're going to have our objective and make Australians proud. That's it. Not once have I spoke about we're going to be the number one team in the world. Not once do we talk about winning. So in my reflection, it is if you're really clear what your goal is, what your higher purpose, what your vision is, whatever you like, and you live it every single day through ups and downs, then you'll achieve it. If you're true to your values, see what happens often with values in business Maisie. Don't start me, JL. You I did it for 20 years yeah, as a professional I've sportsman. A lot of this, you see them on the, the mahogany case, integrity, respect, honesty, and you walk in and they're 15 minutes late. They don't acknowledge you or say, hey, I'm sorry, I'm 15 minutes late. And then oh. the the behaviours do not match the brochures. Right. Yes. It, it irks me. Oh, mate. We, 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 for 20 years, I'd sit there every pre-season and we do our values, we do our mission statements. And for two days or a day or for you'd sit, everyone singing Kumbaya and tickling each other on the back and say, oh, this is great. And then the moment you walk out the door and you can have the fancy words written all over the gym and the office, you can have them on beer mugs, you can have them wherever you want. Guess what? They might as well be toilet paper unless you live them. And that's the, the, the hardest thing about leadership. That's why it's not a popularity contest because you've got to have the courage when someone – lives the behaviour or lives the value, you go, well done, that's how we do it around here, great. If they don't, you'd have the courage to go, that's how we do it around here. And that's hard. That's confronting, Maisie. But that's values. And that's if I reflect, that's what I'm most proud about is that 
we're now, we have made Australians proud of us again. We are a likeable team again. If you look at all the numbers, where we were to where we are now, you know, there's lots to talk about. Everything gets measured these days. We're a really popular team again. I'm really proud of that, Maisie. And guess what? We're the number one team in T20 cricket. We're the number one team in test cricket. We've never spoken about it. So you can have both. You can be a good person and you can be a good cricketer. You can be a good person and you can be a big good business leader. You can be a good person and you can be a great boss. You can be both. And I think they go hand in hand. That's what I'm most proud about in my reflection of the last two and a half and years. And guess what else? You're smiling again. I've learned that you smile because that's what you're true. That's what gets you out of bed every morning. And the other part of it, Maisie, I, in my office at the Wacker, I used to have a, a sign behind my back and it used to say, I never went to Harvard, but I employ a lot of people who did. And I've got incredible people around me. Uh, I've learned the two biggest lessons I've learned in the last couple of years is one, you've got to be incredibly disciplined with the people you get around you and you've got to be incredibly disciplined with how you deal with the media. And if I do that, and they can be tough lessons, but... Um, I employ people who are, I think are better than me, and that's great. And I, I don't. A lot of people get um, intimidated by that, but I'm the opposite. I, I had Steve War with us in the Ashes. I had Ricky Ponting in the World Cup. That, that comes with being comfortable, though. I think it comes with self awareness to acknowledge that and to acknowledge your strengths and some of the areas you can bring other people in, and then also that. Yeah, comfort that you've got people around you and, you know, they're not an insecurity, which is often in business and in life, especially when you're younger. You've, you've, you've spent all your time trying to hide all your blemishes or, you know, your quirks. And I think when you get a bit older, you celebrate those. And a lot of it as well, what comes through talking to you and look, knowing you for a number of years is mindset. So mindset is a huge thing for you. It's so obviously you go back to the stories from your uh, grandma and grandpa and parents and leadership lessons as well. Uh, the Johnny Wilkinson podcast we were speaking about before, the High Performance Podcast, which is a great podcast with Jake Humphrey, an organisational psychologist as well, Damien Hughes. But I know you were particularly intrigued with the Johnny Wilkinson interview on mindset. What, what especially about that made you listen to it a couple of times? Well, one, it's very intense, as you know. I mean, the first time I listened to it, I thought, wow, I didn't know what to think. Then I listened to it a couple of times and uh, I've always been fascinated in Johnny Wilkinson because, one, I remember reading his book. And one of the things he said, and we, we knew Johnny Wilkinson as a superstar, like a superstar of the game, Maisie. And I remember reading his book and he said, I used to set my alarm an hour earlier than I needed to on match day so I could keep pressing the snooze button because I did not want I was too scared to get out of bed. And was it? That was me too, Maisie. Really? On match day. Oh, yeah, man. Like I was driven by the fear of failure, no doubt about that. And so, therefore, I used to just want to stay because bed's comfortable. And then when you had to walk out under the pressure, no one no one loves pressure. Everyone, Some people say they do, but you've still got to get up and move. And the other thing that I loved about Johnny, he was, he was once interviewed by Michael Parkinson, and Michael Parkinson asked him the question, what made you such a great player? And he said, what made me a great player is you are the changing room that you walk into. And I was surrounded by great people that helped me become a great player. And that was, was really powerful for me in creating environments, whether it's with my family, whether it's in the teams I work for um, or work with, creating environments. So that was important. So then I listened to his podcast. And I've been a, 
1993, I learned how to meditate. I've meditated every single day since 1993. And a lot of the stuff he talked about was, you know, staying focused, mindfulness. And I was fascinated by that. And, and after I listened to the podcast, um, I reached out and, I, and I'm actually catching up with Johnny Wilkinson on Microsoft Teams this week. And we're going to have a conversation. I can't wait. It's not, a, it's not going to be a recorded podcast. It's going to be a conversation. And again, one of the privileges I have, Maisie, in my job, I can you almost, someone's going to know someone who's going to get you onto whoever you like. You know, I, I, last summer or last winter, I caught up with Sir Alex Ferguson for lunch. The day before the fourth test match where we retained the Ashes, I caught up with Sir Alex Ferguson, Maisie. This was like, oh my gosh. And it's just, through the did it at, were you at Old Trafford or did you go to a, a restaurant? No, we went to his favourite it? Italian restaurant up in up in Lancashire, and it was like having lunch with my grandfather. It was unbelievable experience. But every time he spoke, it was like this little. The first thing he said to me was, he didn't even know he said it. He went, "Just remember, Justin, truth works." Oh, what a bit of advice! One of our um, values in the Australian cricket team is is honesty and he said truth works i felt like tattooing it on my i said that's my next tattoo truth works but those two words it's like <laughs> the powerful words of let go but truth works and oh my gosh and then it's your next tattoo is that to go with your sleeve yeah well i haven't got a sleeve but truth works i mean powerful words let go and truth works mate i have powerful words but i'm so fortunate to be able to Someone will know someone, I know someone, and, and people are, how on earth are you going to speak to Johnny Wilkinson? I said, I'm just going to, I spoke to him, I spoke to her, and she's organised it, and we just talk because what I've learned about champion people, they love sharing their knowledge. They love sharing, and you can learn so much from them. And if you've got the courage to reach out, I wrote a letter to Sir Donald Bradman in 1995. Like I was 25 years old, and there's a couple of things about this letter to Sir Donald Bradman. One, he replied two days later. He hand-typed a letter two days later and the first line of the letter was, I'm flattered that you believe an octogenarian like myself can help you with your cricket. I mean, there's humility right there. He couldn't, and, I'm, and then the last line of the two lines were, always trust your instincts and never become a slave to coaching. Powerful. And I'm now a coach, but it makes so much sense. The point is, from a young age, I, I reach out to people, I ask for advice, and then people want to give it to you. And if you have the courage to do that, it's amazing. So I can't wait for next Wednesday to ask Johnny Wilkinson some of these questions that have been running around in my mind for years. I've got a question for you. Because for those um, who are really interested in high performance, it's a wonderful interview. He's very reflective and I would say Buddhist-like yeah. uh, growth mindset. You talk about the uh, principle of, of Shoshin, the art of the beginner's mind. There's a real sort of deep, almost sort of Buddhist philosophy with the way he approaches life now and teaching other rugby players. I wonder if he would have been as good as he was if he didn't have that drive. And he openly talks about some of his mental health challenges, had OCD. I remember Jason Weber, who was the physical performance manager at the Wallabies for a number of years before he went to Fremantle. And he's just only recently finished up, Big Jace. And he said, well, come and watch uh, the Wallabies play. It was the British Lions. But get to the game at least an hour earlier. I said, oh, what, what for? He said, go watch Wilkinson warm up. And he went out with one of the, the strength and conditioning coaches or an assistant coach and put this grid of witches' hats on the left and the right side of the field, cut out pass, 
drop kick, 50 off the right foot, cut out pass, 50 on the left, move to the next cone, 50-50, next cone, and, and you get the rest of the story. So when in 2003, with 30 seconds to go, there's a cutout pass to Johnny Wilkinson on his non-dominant foot, his right foot, and he sunk it, you know, not only sunk the field goal, but sunk the, the hearts of 18, 19 million Australians. He'd done that hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and probably thousands and thousands of times in a warm-up. So, yeah, I wonder, JL, if he wasn't that obsessive, would he have been as good as he is now? Now, and would he be able to be as reflective as he is now? Great question. I'm, I'm definitely asking it. I, I'm, you know, I learned that when I, it's funny because I was so obsessive and I was for a lot of my career, but in 1993, Maisie, I got, I played for Australia. I achieved the dream. I played for Australia. I wanted it ever since I was a little kid. I played and then five or maybe two months later, I got dropped for the first time. Oh, my gosh. But an incredibly important lesson came from that. At the end of that test match in New Zealand, I got a duck in both innings. I was trying so hard because I knew that the Ashes was being selected two weeks after. The next series was the Ashes and all I wanted, and I was trying so hard, I forgot about the moment. I forgot about doing really well now. If you do well now, then that'll look after itself. But I had one eye on the future. And then what happened? I, I, because I started not playing well, I started thinking, yeah, but I went well two weeks ago and I wasn't concentrating on today, right? And that's such an important lesson in life. If I didn't concentrate on the next ball, I'm dead. All that mattered in my that my past career was the cricket ball. Focus 100% on the ball, everything would be okay. It's like focus on today, everything would be okay. But the point of that, I, I didn't know that when I was 23 and at the end of it, I got a duck in both innings, and a guy by the name of John Wright came up to me who has played 100 test matches for New Zealand and he probably came up with a stubby and a cigarette at the end of the test. And he goes, I've been watching you, son. I said, oh, yeah, and I'm, I'm struggling, John Wright. He goes, you know what you th- should do, son? You should learn transcendental meditation. I said, what? I nearly fell off my chair. I said, transcendental John Wright got you in it, John, John, because I met John when he was coaching a number of years ago. So he got you into TM. He did a great coach. And he said back then as a 22, and that was his last ever game for New Zealand, 100-odd test matches, tough, learned transcendental meditation. And I I thought nothing of it. Anyway, I ended up getting dropped, Maisie. Can't see past the end of my nose. I mean, I'll never play for Australia again. I was, you know, it was the saddest day of my life. Anyway, two days after I was dropped from the Ashes, I'm sitting at the table reading the West Australian newspaper. There's a big advertisement, learn transcendental meditation. Now, I don't believe in coincidences in life. I remember ringing the guy Derek from Smyth Road, Claremont, and he taught me transcendental meditation. And I've meditated every single day since I was 23 years old. And the point is that's why Johnny Wilkinson fascinated me. I learned to talk me about concentration. It taught me about – and I still do it. I mean, this morning I – Meditated 40 minutes. It's my favourite part of the day. It's a way to start my day. Um, and they're the sort of things I'd love to talk to. You talked about that Buddhist approach to things. Um, you know, I love my martial arts. I love my boxing to this day. So, And they're lessons you learn. So um, that's why I'm looking forward to the, um, the Johnny Wilkinson chat. But I also hope, Maisie, when I finish coaching, I still talk about myself as a novice coach because – one of our values is elite learning, learning every day, getting up every day, looking to get better, looking to learn. And that's so exciting. It's exciting to live a life like that, that, yeah, when it's tough, 
Keep learning, keep getting better, keep learning, keep learning, keep moving forward, keep moving forward. Don't give up, don't quit. I remember being at a conference, and you'll laugh at this, it was a hairdressing conference, and they invited me to do the the opening keynote, and um, speaking after me was the great Kevin Sheedy. So, you know, I'm on the warm-up act, and then Sheeds comes on. We're in Fiji. So this is one of those conferences that you say yes to. Oh, look, you know, it's traveling to Fiji for one hour, but I'll, I'll do that for the hairdressing company because I'm a good guy. And, yeah, I'll, I'll do this one, Justin. And so I spoke, and Kevin Sheedy's in the audience, and he's making notes. And, and first I was like – what's he doing here? Secondly, what's he writing notes about? And then he spoke and it was about uh, GWS and they were just setting up the GWS. And But he went back to Melbourne and he worked out why they were at Essendon and you know, drew a circle around the airport and spoke about the whole origins of bringing Essendon and what they were going to do similar to GWS. He's a great storyteller. And then after I went up and I said, oh, hi, Kevin. And similar to your Johnny Howard story, he was very respectful. Oh, hi, Andrew. I really enjoyed your presentation. I'm like, well, Kevin, I've got to ask you, like, you know, you rock star coach, his uh, former strength and conditioning coach, John Quinn, had been my fitness trainer or my my coach at uh, the Tasmanian Institute of Sport. So there was a bit of a connection there. We spoke about John. And I said, look, you're making notes in my presentation. Can I ask, what, what were you writing about? And he said, what, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, you're Kevin Sheedy, the super coach. He said, the moment you start thinking that is the moment you give up. He said, young fella, he said, you have some great insights into recovery and a different approach. And I'm going to start doing that stuff for myself. And I got a note from him a couple of years later saying he was practicing some of the stuff I'd spoken about and it was making a difference to his personal recovery. So it just showed that, you know, he'd had multiple premiership wins, um, just about to go and set up GWS, but he'd never stopped learning. One thing about learning you said before was learning about small business, especially from your father. Uh, Cricket Australia is facing some pretty challenging times now. Um, Channel 7 and Cricket Australia are at at this stage going to arbitration to talk about rights. That has a big impact on the game um, from employment numbers to to payment for players as well. India, at the moment, we're not 100% sure whether they're they're coming out. So what are you learning now about business? Because, you know, when you take on the coaching role, first of all, everyone is saying to you at Fremantle, whoa, what's happening with the culture? And now it's also, I'm assuming, you've got to know a lot about business and what's happening in the, the macro environment with media, you know, with games coming up, who we're playing. It's one of the reasons I took on the role as a board member of the West Coast Eagles, Maisie. It's been one of the great professional and personal experiences in my life. I mean, I love the, I love my AFL, I love footy, um, and I'm a huge supporter of West Coast Eagles, but I've learned so much because I go into these board meetings with people, you talk about people who went to Harvard and I didn't. Oh, my gosh, I'm on the board with six or seven of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. They are great people and they are so smart and savvy in business. So I'm learning so much from that. Uh, I remember, and we've all been watching the NRL and the AFL, obviously, and the week, the Friday before the AFL was first postponed for COVID, we went into an emergency board meeting. And I remember sitting, that was on the Friday, The West, I was going to speak to the West Coast Eagles footy club that on the Saturday morning before their first game, which is on the Sunday. And it, then it got postponed on the Sunday after their first game. Anyway, I was in this board meeting and I sat there and my jaw was almost on the table listening to the ramifications of no football. And it was like, my gosh. And then the reason I say that is because then I started thinking about what's going to happen with cricket and 
my learnings about the business of sport through the West Coast Eagles Footy Club have been massive. So now it's not only about win-loss for me as a coach, I see what the incredible importance, and we've seen it. We're seeing in AFL now the soft caps are going to be are going to be reduced dramatically. And guess what that means, Maisie? In the football departments, that's a lot of people made made redundant, and that's when you see see it becomes real. And I see it. We've already made some redundancies at Cricket Australia. We haven't even had the summer yet. So, I mean, I think. I want to get my numbers right. If India don't come out this summer, I think it's worth between $200 and $300 million in revenue. To, and people are like, what? Well, that's how big the business of sport is now. Now, what I always learned from my dad, my dad, my dad had um, car, new car businesses all our life, and my dad used to always talk about costs and revenues and costs and revenues and taxes. And I'd go, okay. and he's been so dis. He's almost like smashed it into me over time. Mate, you want to do this? Well, remember, if you're going to buy this, remember this, the cost. And I go, okay, you want to build this? Remember the cost. And now I look at the costs and the revenue. I mean, if if we don't get crowds in, well, the revenue on ticket sales is going to be dramatically decreased. If we keep the costs of running, getting the biosecurity to get India and the costs of running the biosecurity and the costs are astronomical or they increase dramatically. So if the revenues decrease and the costs increase, guess what that means? Amazing. Any business is under pressure. And if you're under pressure, guess what happens? It affects human beings. And that's when you care for people. That's really hard, Maisie. So, uh, and that's the, the business of sport. Do you think the players get that? So you- so, so one thing I'd say with the, the players is they're on a revenue sharing model. So if the revenues decrease, yeah, of course they'll be affected down the track. But but the costs. But do they really do they really get it though? Because you know, we were saying before when you were talking about the, the rock stars, the big four or five, and they're looking at their next two or three years, and every really every day, not just week, is taken care of with games and recovery and everything else. Did you worked for Bankwest? You're saying you worked for the stockbroking firm. You used to love going to training one day a week, and you had that passion. So you had, for you know, want of a better term, a more of a grounding with what it's really like in the outside world. Mm-hmm. And when you come out of the bubble, I don't mean the biosecurity bubble. When you come out of the bubble from professional sport, which when you've been in it, you see a lot of people struggle because you know you're known as the batsman, the swimmer, the cyclist, you know, the goal kicker, and suddenly you're the guy down at the coffee shop with everyone else up and doing your own laundry. So do you think the players really get though? If, if India don't come out and it's a $300 million, that the, the upstream effect of that is you get a lot less money? No, I think it's and, – and, and look, to be fair to the players, they don't need to get it, Maisie, in the sense that they're in this beautiful little period in their life where they concentrate on performing on the field, right? It is so complex. It's like everything to do with coronavirus now – there's so many stakeholders. There's broadcasters. There's the players. There's the sponsors. There's the the, the fans. There's, there's the biosecurity. There's the states. There's so many stakeholders. So it is so complex. And as a player, I, I've been in these meetings every single day for five months, and it's, and it's really hard for me to understand. I'm in every single meeting. So the players, in a sense, they don't need to get it, Maisie. It's too hard, mate. We want them to concentrate, but... They'll be affected. I mean, I there's a I wrote an article a few years ago about the irrelevant syndrome. 
And what the irrelevance syndrome is when you go from the public eye and you move out of the public eye, I remember a few things happened when I retired as a player. First, I was asked to coach. The, the, the ACA had a, um, a series where it was the, the team of the year, the year before against the, the current Australian team. And it was at the Gabba and they asked me to coach it. I'd never coached. I just finished playing. And I remember walking down the race and I just played 105 test matches. In my mind, I was a bloody legend. And not one kid asked me for my autograph. They're all asking for these kids' autographs who are in the playing outfit. And not one kid asked me because they wanted the kid, the, the players' autographs, not the coach's autograph. So it was a great lesson in ego. Drop your ego. That's exactly right. So a great lesson early on. The second thing was I've gone from earning all this money as a player and I remember being asked, Ricky Ponting and uh, Tim Nielsen asked me to be an assistant coach for the Australian cricket team. And I'll never forget, I was sitting in this office where I am now, and a guy like Michael Brown, who was the cricket um, high-performance manager, then rang me, he goes, oh, what do you think about being an um, assistant coach of the Australian cricket team? I said, oh, yeah, okay, I wasn't sure what I was going to do post-cricket, but I'll give it a try, Brownie. He goes, right, so just to me, pay you $300 a day. And I went, what? He goes, yeah, we pay you $300 a day. And, and I nearly fell off my seat. I was earning... $6,000 a speaking gig or $8,000 a speak, and yet you want to pay me $300 a day to be away from it? He goes, well, that's what you get paid as a coach, mate. And I was... That, and that wasn't your travel allowance. You know, the first thing was, oh, is that my allowance? No, 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 that's, yeah, it's... it's that's what I get paid, mate. And yeah. I nearly fell out. And the point was you go from being the star to being a worker. And then, and I had to, and this is going to sound really silly, but it's true. I had to find my own doctor. I had to find my own dentist. I had to find, and because for 20 years I had it all on a silver platter. If I need to see the doctor, if I need to see the physio, I've never, I didn't have a massage. I to get a massage two times a week or three times a week. No, no, you got to go and pay 100 bucks an hour for it. I said, oh, what? Now you got, because that's what I'm saying. It's a Cinderella world. Do the players get it? No, no, they don't get it, mate. And that's okay. That's okay. They're living this beautiful time in their life. They've got the players' associations, AFL, and NRL and the Cricket Association, they, they look after those things. But it is a great shock when it hits. And it's hit AFL, it's hit NRL, and it's going to hit cricket in one form or the other as it's hit small business, as it's hit big business. I mean, Qantas, uh, West Farmers, all the big companies are all going through the same thing. Well, it's the, the flow and effect as well because well, we've, we've interviewed Craig Tarleaf, the CEO of Tennis Australia. Have you met Craig? No, but I've been fascinated. Yeah, he's an amazing operator. Yeah, I think you and he would have a – I'd be very interested to sit back and have a red wine and listen to you and Craig talk about mm. life and philosophy. And yeah, he's got a sore story, you know, Sort of some parallels to you, played well, um, got dropped and came back as a coach and then he's now gone on to admin and um, the Australian Open is without doubt the number one of the big four now that's voted by the players. And Craig's been a real visionary in tennis. They took out uh, insurance. He spoke about that in the podcast. They took out pandemic insurance and everyone was saying he's crazy five years ago. Unbelievable vision. Unbelievable foresight. But Craig talks about every coach and JL, you'll, you'll connect with this. Every coach around Australia is a small business owner. You look at all the coaches in cricket who now, and I, I think of you know, Jason Crazier, um, 
David Dawson, a lot of uh, players that I worked with at New South Wales, Don Nash, all of these sort of players who played good state cricket, a lot of those have got coaching businesses. They're self-employed. You look at games at test matches, there's people that work at the grounds. A lot of those people, that's their source of income. You've got the, the coffee carts, you've got the entertainment. So Tennis Australia, Craig was saying, brings in half a million, so half a billion dollars a year, 500 million. Uh, a year. And just when that's not played, there's loads of small businesses, entertainers, uh, everyone. Right. So the, the downstream effect from Cricket Australia not getting India come out is not just the $300 million in revenue. It's not just the TV rights. It's all the small businesses in all the cities that get test matches or one days or 2020 games. 100%. A couple of questions before we go. One is, uh, I'm not saying you're Nostradamus, but if you were, if you had a crystal ball in front of us right now, two predictions. First of all, prediction on Cricket Australia. What does it look like in 12 months' time from now? The key is right now we've, we've been in another crisis. Uh, and there's two things I've learned, Maisie. One, when a crisis hits, think sandpaper. You've got to know what you're going to want, what the vision is. And you've got to have the energy to roll your sleeves up and get the work done because in crisis, it's tough. Right now, we're in another crisis called COVID. Um, we've got to be really clear what our vision is and we've got to roll our sleeves up. And my, my worry is that so many people have worked so hard that you've got to have this energy. So my vision is that we'll come through it uh, it's going to take really strong leadership. It's going to take strong vision. It's going to take priorities and it's going to take great people to get through it because, my gosh, we're in another crisis. Mm. And what's next for you? What's next? I think that often when you're doing well, that's the danger period. And we're, ma we're making Australians proud again. Where The key is, is that when you start doing well, you've got to stay on top of it. And you've got to keep resetting your goals. I, I often thought, Maisie, and I see this often, I my goal, my dream was to wear a baggy green cap. Two months later, it was off. I got dropped. And I think it was mainly because I didn't reset my goals. So we're resetting our goals. But the number one priority for me is to just keep polishing up, making Australians proud and giving kids heroes. We want heroes. I mean, I just love the game because I love Kim Hughes and Rod Marsh and Dennis Lilly and Viv Richards. I want our players to be heroes. And, you know, I love what the, the women's cricket team are doing. They're heroes to the girls. And I want us to be make Australians proud of us. If I say this to myself every single day. I say it to our players all the time when we have one-on-one -on -one meetings. Guys, if you think of nothing else, every day you wake up, Think about making Australians proud because that includes your mum and your dad, your grandparents, your brothers and your sister, your mates, the public. If you make them proud of you, we're going to be okay. They don't want to see us losing all the time. That's not going to make them proud. So you've got to play good cricket and the way you behave on and off the field is going to make them proud. So if we think of nothing else, we'll not only make Australians proud, we'll earn back respect from overseas and, um, you know, that's to me really and will produce heroes so that's what we'll keep doing and that's what gets me out of bed winning and losing it's more fun winning than losing over you the big tip uh, you sleep better when you win but what gets me out of bed is making australians proud of us and, and helping these kids i have the players i work with be heroes because that's about helping people the reason i went into coaching is the only reason is to help people get better and um 
And people say, oh, that's a bit corny, Justin. It's actually the truth. The only reason I do it is I want to help these guys, you know, realise their dreams, get better. Uh, so that's what gets me out of bed, not so much winning and losing. And, and this is going to sound really dumb, Maisie. And I've said this many times. I'll judge my coaching career not on how many trophies I've won or how many wedding and christening uh, invitations I get. I love that. From my players. Yeah, I love that. Because it means that I've cared for them, I've earned their respect, they know I care for them, not just as a cricketer but as a person. So, you know, I've been to a few weddings. So any Australian cricketers listening to this, if you want to get uh, – if, you, yeah. if you're struggling for runs or taking wickets and you want to have some backup from the Look big brother, invite him to your wedding. On yeah. my desk right now is a save this date, the Ashton Agar, to his wedding in April. So, <laughs> oh, so Ashton's a smart man. He's he scored a century on the weekend. That won't hurt his uh, chances either. Hey, your your passion, your enthusiasm is contagious as much as it was years ago. Um, probably more so now. I think you, you seem like you're in a really comfortable spot with yourself, with the culture of the team, just where you are in life, with your family. I, I know you do fitness to recharge. I know that because when I was working with the Aussie team back in 05, and I said this at the very start, so I've got to close a loop. Uh, when all the other players had finished, it was the World Series 11. Do you remember that? It was in 05. And um, I was the fitness trainer for the Aussie team in that series and the other guys are having a beer and you said, Maisie, do you want to go for a run? I went, yeah, I do want to run. We ran around Centennial Park. My dad still reminds me to this day. He said, oh, that Langer, he's, he's pretty focused, isn't he? Like when everyone else was having beers and finishing, I think you said you didn't do enough running out in the, the middle of the wicket that day. So you wanted to go and burn some extra energy. But what, what do you do apart from exercise to recharge? I listened to a great podcast the other day, Maisie, a guy called um, – Jay Shetty, Jay Shetty, he was a monk. He talks about Dharma. Oh, he was, and one thing he said, he used the um, time, the word time. One thing I loved about that period, the COVID period, was time. I had time. But he uses the time. There's the, um, the four letters of time. One is thankfulness. So every day. And I, I write my gratitude journal every single night. It's my, one of my disciplines. One is thankfulness. Second was inspiration. Every day, thankfulness. Second was inspiration. I mean, I love the fact we're talking and I've talked about people have inspired me. Do something every day that's inspired you with it. Read a quote, read a book, talk to someone. Inspiration. Number three is meditation. I do that every morning. And four is exercise. So I think about it. You know, they're really important. I write my gratitude journal every single day. I meditate every morning. I exercise every day. And um, I look for inspiration every day. I'm looking to learn every day. So that's a really nice way. I only listened to that three, three or four days ago, Jay Shetty, but it's a really good way to think about it. I love my garden. I love my friends. Um, but I like being healthy. There's no doubt about that because I've I've know what it's like when you're mentally burned out. It's a horrible place to be. I know what it's like when you start feeling sick physically or you feel a bit sloppy physically. It's not a great feeling. That's why I love to keep on top of things. So on the theme of inspiration, is there a quote? Is there a poem? Is there a song? Is there a thing that you draw inspiration from? Is there one thing or is it multiple oh, things? Multiple. Have you got a favourite quote? I've got, I've got a room out in the back, Maisie. It's a 15 by 5 metre room. It started off as my, my gym, 5 metres. Then it turned to a 10 metres, like my study and my gym. Now it's turned to a 15 metre. Now my daughter lives up the back. But the day I built it, 
20 years ago, I walked up the back, I got a big permanent marker, and I wrote this quote across the hole above the, um, the door, the sliding door. So it was a big quote. The pain of discipline is nothing like the pain of disappointment. The pain of and all discipline really is the choices you make. So now that room is full of quotes and scriptures and poems. It is like an inspiring place. My daughter lives up the back now, Maisie, but she just came back from London 12 months ago. But And whilst she loves living up there, I say, you, you can't ever do anything to these walls because one day I'm going to sit in the middle of that room. I'm going to put a desk in the middle. I'm going to look around every quote because every quote's got a story, Maisie. And I'm going to write a great book about leadership or inspiration. Every quote's got a story of people I've met, places I've been, uh, and one day I can't wait to write that book. Love it. And I'd seen the picture of that. It was in The Australian, an article with you, I think, earlier this year. And I thought it was Photoshopped. And I looked and I thought, no, no, no there's no. a few quotes, I think, that would be very pertinent for you. So no, and they're, all written, the they're all handwritten in permanent marker, every quote. And there'd be, oh, there must be, I don't know, at least 500 quotes up there. It's a great room, great room. I love to be inspired by people. Final question for you. Is there anything that I should have asked you today? that I haven't asked you, or is there anything you would like to ask me? One thing I'll say, Maisie, it's not always rainbows and butterflies. People often see a public figure and they're smiling and they're talking, inspiration, but my gosh, I've been to some really dark places. And I think um, looking back, we've sort of touched on it today, looking back on the really dark places I've been in my life at the time, you can't see past the end of, the, the end of your nose and you want to just be in a dark cave, you crawl into a cave, you want the earth to open up and swallow your whole right. But, and at the time, it's really hard. And I know a lot of people are going through some hard times at the moment. But looking back on my, as a 50-year-old man now, Maisie, I look back on it, as hard a times as they were, they were also the best times in my life because I learned so much. I remember my mum was sick and it was, you know, we went, through it she passed away at her part and I got to read my mum her eulogy now not many people had a chance to do that but I sat I couldn't look at her like we're looking face I had to sit next to her because it would have been too hard but I read my mum her eulogy the toughest time in my life and I look back on that time and what an opportunity what an inspiration what a beautiful moment in our life you know um so the hard times keep getting through it because you can get through it and you can learn some great lessons in those times. I'd probably finish on that. Mm. Some great messages today. Um, I think for people listening to this, probably go back and listen again to pick up some of the nuggets. So can I just say from my end, thank you. Thank you for being so generous, but thank you for being so authentic. You do live and breathe this. Uh, you practice it each day. It's not just quotes that sometimes people roll off and the, the behaviours definitely match the values in what you're talking about. So I, I sometimes finish this, Justin, saying, where can people follow you on social media or where can they find you? You don't have any social. Just have to follow you on the TV uh, and follow you in the paper and see the progress you're making with the culture of the Aussie cricket team. Thanks, Maisie. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Hey, it's Andrew again, and we hope you enjoyed that interview. Just a quick note to remember to please go to nab.com.au slash businessfit 
We hope you really liked this episode and received lots of value and we would love it if you can go to iTunes, Google Play, Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and click on the subscribe button. We'd also really appreciate it if you share it with friends or colleagues you think might also benefit from these messages. And we'd really appreciate if you can rate and review it. We'd love seeing your messages and love seeing your ratings. Okay, that's it for this time. We look forward to connecting with you again on the next episode of NAB Business Fit. 